0: On allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. C'est si.
1: Hello. Welcome back to the Ackerman Year. It's month five. Joining us, Caden Gardner, also here.
2: Hello. I'm uh Caden Gardner, also go by Caden Mark Gardner. I am a freelance uh film critic. I have written for the Criterion Collection, uh Film Comment, uh Dig Boston, uh Hyper Allergic, and a bunch of other places.
3: I don't even remember exactly how Caden and I met, but we definitely found each other through Twitter a bunch of years yes. ago, I think, right? Yeah.
2: Yes, a bunch of years ago. I'm not even on Twitter anymore. And, <laughs> yeah, not I me met.
3: either, really. <laughs>
2: But I, I was a diehard fan of uh your twin peaks podcast and i listened to it i still sometimes listen to the last one with tom mccarthy and dennis mm-hmm. lynn because i just think it's a very sort of rich text of discussion
3: Aww. that's oh, nice that's so
1: nice to hear because it was such a fucking nightmare to
3: record <laughs> it was the you did was... mention
1: that
2: kate did mention that <laughs>
3: I have a hard time listening to it, not because it's not great, because it is. I think there's really good things in that discussion. But because I get, like... PTSD around like just <laughs> the hearing uh, everybody breaking up all the time and like things going awry when we had our like biggest guests and we were so nervous, but anyway it all worked out and it was good thanks to Simon's rescue efforts. um But yeah, I mean that's sort of what I was going to say is that I definitely remember Kane and I getting to know each other a bit better during the wonderful, wonderful months of uh, Twin Peaks when so many critics got to kind of spend more time together. um Yeah, it's too bad we could have had you on the pod the lodgers podcast back in the day, but this is I, is- I,
2: I would have felt. Willow equipped now that is something that um my friend Willow would probably have loved to have done because um she is honestly the critic who I kind of associate with uh Fire Walk With Me reappraisal yeah so yeah
3: that's true yeah this is a Willow McLeod for people who don't know Willow's work and she is a super interesting critic too and uh highly recommend you checking her out Caden has a, a blog with Willow right called Body Talk do I have that right
2: yeah it's we put, publish it on both of our sites. Uh, I kind of use it for for my patreon, which I kind of sparsely use because I have a full-time job, and it's a little difficult for me to kind of churn out content. but we'll put, puts it on her patreon and her site Curtsy and hand grenades, Kurtzies and hand grenades uh, to be clear. And uh, yeah, it's called Body Talk, and we sort of discuss um, trans images in cinema. And just sort of the history on that, we're kind of working through that. But obviously, sometimes we run up on either being busy or technical problems with both of our computers. Our computers each over the last two years have been taking it on the chin, so to speak. So, yeah.
3: Well, that's. I uh, let's cross our fingers and hope that there are no angry computer gods tonight during this podcast. <laughs> I have fingers. Finger, fingers crossed.
1: I have these two features in our in our handy document as the, the the cities in love grouping, but I've been calling it the hot summer nights episode, <laughs> uh, because that seems to me to be the most efficient way to draw a line between these two films. And uh, with that, it's on to our uh, our first of two um, features we're talking about this month. The first is from 1982, and it's called Toute Une Nuit, aka All Night Long. And I have to say, Kate. In theory, this is a simple concept, at least to read about. But I found, as I was trying to think of a way to come up with like a one sentence description of exactly what this film is, I found it vexingly difficult.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like that for all of Ackerman's films. They are impossible to reduce down to kind of like sound bites or taglines, right? Okay. Well, I want to ask you. I sorry, Simon, had you seen it before this? I
1: I had film? not. No, I hadn't no? seen either of these films before
2: before uh, getting ready for this episode
3: interesting this is my
2: favorite Ackerman actually really there are times when I think it is my very favorite Ackerman
3: it is a lovely film (laughs) I feel like I feel like too too it's gonna be hard not to just sort of gush about it um through the whole thing but uh but yeah I mean I want to hear a bit about Simon's first um experience of it but maybe do you want Simon do you want me to situate us a little bit Uh, biographically where we are?
1: Yeah, let's do that. And then I want to circle back to why this is Caden's favorite, because I'm like, I I really want to hear about it.
3: Interesting. Okay. Um, All right. Well, some of this is going to be overlap with um, material we've mentioned in previous episodes. But at this point, uh, we're in the early 80s, and Ackerman had been trying to make the adaptation of the Isaac Bacheva Singer uh, novels, which have now finally fallen through. That isn't going to work. Um, and she sort of knew she would need time to raise money for the big musical she wanted to make, which will eventually become Window Shopping, and we'll talk about that later. Um, and so she, I, from, I don't have much more details than this, but apparently she attended the Cannes Film Festival in order to try to raise money for a film about Brussels, um, and I guess she got some. I don't know the budget of Tutu Novi, but apparently she got enough <laughs> to, uh, to make this film. Um, it was actually made with much sparser uh, budgetary means, then I think the final film might imply, and we can we can talk about that more later. Um, but then the other things I wanted to say just at the beginning here is that this episode is maybe one of the first ones we're doing that kind of deals directly with Ackerman's transition from the 1970s material that is, of course, associated with the sort of minimalism, the kind of um, uh, formal like sparseness. Um, I don't want to say dryness, but other people might say that. Um, her transition from that material into her, the kind of different tacks that she's taking in the 80s and then as part of her work into the 90s, which ha- has often been characterized as a kind of turn into, on the one hand, postmodernism. Um, and maybe we can break down a little bit more why that would be relevant to bring that term up um, as we get into discussion of the film. But postmodernism, on the one hand, and then kind of interests in sexuality, desire, the body. And at least in part, that sort of maps onto trends that were happening in kind of like feminist thought up to a point. I mean, there's debates obviously about the trajectories of this, but there is a sort of like wider move in, um, a feminist filmmaking um, and, and also maybe sort of queer filmmaking as well towards a kind of like embracing of visual pleasure, a, like moving away from the sort of um, counter cinema, radical political form of the 1970s into these kinds of yeah celebrations of like desire and um, spectatorial enjoyment in cinema. You know, like there's films like um, Sally Potter's Orlando uh i'm trying to think of other examples but anyway so that's sort of the backdrop for this and there's a lot more to say about kind of what ackerman's interests are here and what that transition looks like but that's sort of where we are where we are at and then the next film we'll talk about later very much continues this even though it's into the early 90s at that point
1: uh so Caden, when you say that uh is your favorite i'm a i'm wondering what else is in contention and, Um, and then b
2: what what puts this one over the top Okay, so I would say the other ones in contention are obviously Jean Dillman and a uh, portrait of a young girl at the end of the 1960s in Brussels. So yeah, those rank highly for me. Like my dream is to have a Jean Dielman tattoo. You can't <laughs> really find a thing to tattoo for this. Put on me. <laughs> okay. um, I think when I watched it, I was kind of going through a phase of coming to terms with the fact that sometimes I could kind of be a very solitary figure. And I got into Edward Hopper's art as a result of that, to sort of try to sort of figure out, figure out sort of my relationship to the, to the world and also how art can sometimes portray either loneliness or solitariness. And for whatever reason, this film just hits me where I think Chantel Ackerman, and there's other work that kind of fits this bill, but none more so than All Night Long, in my opinion, where she's the only one who I think has actually earned Edward Hopper comparisons in her work. And this one just does have a very sort of Hopper-esque portrayal of sort of nocturnes, people who are just hanging around in these spaces They have these really unspoken, unsaid relationships with each other, but it just is almost all simmering. And there's sometimes this sort of yearning that you see. You sort of try to figure out what is going on with the relationships here. And while there is obviously dialogue here, like, there have been some cases when I've watched this movie without subtitles, and sometimes I don't even think it necessarily needs it. It's kind of like size days in that way where I, I can totally still tell what's going on here in the relationships over the course of the films. Cause we go in and out. We sort of have these drop-ins of all these people in the city at night into morning. And there's just something that I just find deeply sort of beautiful about sort of these sort of expressions and different expressions and nuances of human behavior we see.
1: Uh, coming back to my thoughts on how to sort of summarize this to people, um, if I had to, I was thinking about how every description I, com- I came up with was wrong in some way, like calling it an intercut series of vignettes. Like, I guess that's like superficially, like it's kind of true, but to, to say it feels wrong um and to say it's you know if you if you want to say that it's about you know this sort of portrayal of nor- these various manifestations of nocturnal romantic love it's like well that's sort of most of the movie but not certainly not all
2: of it um there is yeah, my favorite uh, shot is of like the old man who's yeah at his desk that's probably actually one of my favorite shots.
1: yeah yeah God, I have I have a lot of uh, sort of initial thoughts, but I will say one really funny aspect of d- d- researching this episode and just kind of poking around the internet, seeing what people have to say about Ackerman was looking at the letterbox pages for for this film and for um, Night and Day and ha- seeing repeated references to Night and Day as the quote, more accessible sort of cousin to yeah. this movie, which was not at all my experience.
3: Interesting. That's interesting. So did you find Tutu Nui sort of, I mean, I, that word accessible is loaded and, and yeah, I we, yeah. we'll talk about it later because Ackerman has thoughts about it. But um, did you find Tutu Nui, quote unquote, more accessible?
1: Oh, totally. Like I was able, I felt like I was able to key into what it was doing, like pretty much immediately. And then I, it kind of, it kind of never lost me.
3: Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, I saw this film in this famed class that I always mention here <laughs> that Jerry White taught um, where I saw a number of Ackerman films early on, and Tutu Nui was one of them. I mean, this is, of course, back in the day when film studies classes meant that you watched things on VHS tapes that were terrible transfers. And like Kane says, I, I don't think I saw it originally with subtitles. I think that it was actually hard to find an English subtitle copy of this film for a long time. Um, and I, for whatever reason, when I was young, it just didn't, it just was washed over me. I didn't understand what it was doing. I just don't think I had the language to, to grasp what was, what the film was actually doing. And I, I think I enjoyed it. I mean, I don't remember not enjoying it. I mean, I just sort of remember being kind of lost while I was watching it. And it's only as I've, you know, grown in my taste and my thinking about film that I've really come to understand what the film is doing. And I mean, this is the thing is like, it, it really is, I think a beloved film. I think a lot of people do consider it their favorite of Ackerman's and yeah, I mean, that's maybe hard to kind of drill down on why exactly. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll try, I'll take a stab at trying to describe the film a little bit more for listeners who haven't seen it. So yeah, as Simon says, there's sort of, it's a series of vignettes. Um, the first half of it, particularly, uh, you're following characters for like, I don't know. I mean, the sequences are quite short, it, they don't last very long. Each sequence tends to have two people in it, but some have one, fewer often they, it's less often that there's only one person, but most of the time there's two characters and they're kind of engaged in some sort of mini drama or narrative that invokes the idea of, of love and romance. Um, It's like a, they're like seminal moments in a kind of narrative of the lover or lovers Um, gestures, actions, attitudes. Uh, This is sort of what you see in each of these little dramas when people, you know one a man is chasing a woman a woman is trying to get away from a man <laughs> um you know a couple is at a bar drinking next to each other um and they leave together suddenly or two strangers start dancing together in a bar i mean it's this kind of um thing over and over again and so on the one hand it's sort of this like exploration of love and you know ivona mariela talks about it as a kind of an attempt to reinvigorate this like formally and thematically depleted idea of the love story, um, trying to kind of like reinvigorate that by rescuing, you know, aspects of romance and love and their representation and depiction from convention and from cliche. It's like you go into the cliche as deep as you can to sort of see what you can reactivate out of that. And I think that's a great description of what the film is doing. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the first you see, I think, more than 80 characters or something. There's a huge cast in this film, especially compared to Ackerman's previous work. The latter section of the film, many of these characters do come back. Not all of them, um, but you do tend to return to, I would say, maybe 10 or 12 of them uh, come back, sometimes more than once. Auro um, Éric- Clément from uh, Meetings with Anna is in the mix here, and her character returns a couple of times um, And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so much more to say here, but does anybody else want to jump in?
1: (laughs) I'm looking at my notes and trying to think of where to start.
3: Yeah.
2: There's a a lot of gestures. Um, There's that scene in the kind of uh, diner area where you have the jukebox playing. And there's Shute Ilil also I can re- I kind of recall that in both this and it later in Night and Day for different reasons. But I thought of sort of the scenes at the restaurant where it's just very quiet and sometimes just the sort of ambiance of the whole setting just takes over, whether it's a television in GTLL or the jukebox. And in some cases you have people dancing, but other cases you don't. You have just people sort of sitting there next to each other, motionless, and you're wondering what is going on here. And there's there's just all these gestures and also just non-gestures. So you're really trying to, you're sort of put in the place of trying to read these people's sort of interactions and think of what is the possible history happening here that is encapsulated into this single night
1: one thing that i that i that i think also sort of unites some of these uh, interactions which is these quick moves from sort of action like inaction to action or from being in being in what for lack of a better term in the mood to suddenly to not or otherwise um often sometimes represented by dancing or things that are dancing
2: like Yeah, there's, there's a, it can be a jolt. There's like the scene with some of the dancing actually made me think of of all things. uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours where there's that scene where Griffin Dunn goes to the bar and just needs a connection with somebody. So he picks this random, very docile woman to dance with. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just the intensity of that, of the sort of dance like or dance quality in both of those but I don't know why I connected that for whatever reason
1: yeah it is it is worth noting that like most of the interactions are like pretty common placid but there are definitely a few especially involving men shepherding women around uh that get that get a little uh questionable especially because they're so brief
3: well yeah I mean I, and again I think this is sort of I think you know Ackerman would find it fascinating that you connected to um after hours because it's sort of this is kind of the point here right is that it isn't it's both about the specificity of these particular figures who are being shown on screen, but then it's also about the question of, like, representation and what does it mean to, like, represent the idea of love and the way love is represented in cinema, right? Like, this is sort of the postmodern question of, like, looking back at a series of texts that have, like, pre-existed um, Tutu Nui, and Tutu is this kind of, like, analytic view on this question which is an interesting way to put it because on the one hand this film feels so emotional but then on the other hand it does have a bit of a kind of analytic quality to it um this sort of like investigative quality of what it's like as if you could catalog all of the different gestures that lovers would make um as they go through an experience of love and it and in this way it's like she's almost there's almost a bit of a parody of something like the kind of uh, structuralist, like structuralist mentality, you know, like literary analysis, the idea that you could like find all of the the 112 pieces that go into every narrative. Every narrative has 10 or more of these 112 pieces and you just put them together in different ways. And so it's almost like she's playing with that. But then as, as critics, like um, again, Margulies and Marion Schmidt have pointed out, they, she also really like resists the idea that this would just be a sort of serial accumulation of, you know, quote unquote scenes from other movies, or like scenes from Love, because of the the real specificity of the characters and the fact that, as you say, Caden, you're like really drawn into thinking about what is happening between these specific people in this specific moment in Brussels on this night. Um, and there's more to say about the kind of Brussels angles, uh, Br- Brussels angle of it as well. But um, but yeah, I don't know. Does anybody want to jump in there?
1: The um, you know, another thought I've been having that that connects to this movie. Something that um, that I thought about when um, I won't get too because I don't want to date the podcast or or, or or fire any shots that don't deserve to be shot. But um, I went to I went to for an outing to a movie theater and I saw a um, w- widely liked new art house movie from <laughs> Europe involving being on a train. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll just I'll stick to that. Um, and I was watching it. And thinking, I can see Caden uh, trying to figure out what it, I'm talking
2: it, about. It's not. It's not that the, they don't have a train in the new Agatha, Agatha Christie one. That was <laughs> no, no. One, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> think less Hollywood, and that's that's all I'll say. Okay. Anyway, okay. The, the the point is that as I was watching it, I kept thinking about uh, Les Rendezvous d'Anna mm-hmm. and what a rich mysterious text that is and I was just watching this new film and it was you know, nicely made and I could see why people liked it but everything about it was just so pat and flat by comparison yeah. and um, watching this movie made me think about um, sort of the network narrative films that would come later Starting in like the early 2000s and how this sort of like prefigures those, but in like such a more interesting way where you you really have to be, you know, it's not doing all the work for you.
3: No, and, and also it doesn't reduce down to a kind of totality at the end of it, right? Like this is, I think, an important aspect of this film is that the characters don't meet each other. There's no, there's no like revelation of some secret link between all of them, which I think is is very kind of common Hollywood modality, it does date from the 2000s, but yeah, this idea of the kind of like, yeah, you reduce everything down to like a secret narrative that was there all mm-hmm. along. And this is really not what that film is doing.
2: Yeah, they all live
1: in the same city and that's really- That's it, it yeah. yeah I, you can totally imagine someone raised, uh, it's like a, a more contemporary viewer being very frustrated by this aspect of the
3: movie, potentially. I do think that there is, at the same time as this movie is very like pleasurable and enjoyable, I do think there is a, a sense in which- Viewers who are not as familiar with kind of more experimental film traditions, you know, I think might struggle here a little bit because I do think that the film, it is it is a structural film in a certain kind of sense. It is the, the meaning of the film exists in the relationship between the shots. And if you're not able to kind of like be open enough to realize that you have to do that work of kind of tracking what it is the film is doing from shot to shot and thinking about it in this kind of holistic, like structural way to make sense of the film I feel like you would just be lost, which is what happened to me the first time I saw it. Um, The film really does kind of like reject these sort of traditional arcs of a film that is, you know, conflict, um, climax, resolution. This movie just sort of takes snatches of narrative and puts them together for you. And you, I think, find your way into that and you enjoy it or you don't. You know, I think it depends on the, the viewer. Yeah, yeah.
1: I have it on, on mute in the background. I'm just looking at the at the frames. And I, I think another sort of aspect that people might uh, struggle with, especially if they're not familiar with Ackerman, is the way people speak in the movie mm. has some of the, I guess, um, and not not everyone, but I, I feel like, it, like a lot of the performances have that slightly affectless um, distance quality. Even though they're, like for the most part, characters speaking very plainly about what they want mm. or don't want. Um, which is also just another fascinating wrinkle of like the the overall approach here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have thoughts about like the speech elements in it. But Caden, did you want to say something from before there?
2: Well, I kind of wanted to get into the fact, like Simon mentioned, like it's not all these sort of vignettes on love Mm. or anything like that or snapshots of love. Like we get to the shot of the sort of old man who's at his sort of office desk in the night. And I kind of, that is, Honestly, probably the most Hopper esque shot mm-hmm. I could identify in that movie because, like, I think of the fact that maybe his love is in his labor, or maybe mm-hmm. he is just aged into a point where he can't really connect on any sort of level with another person, or maybe there's just some other history there that we obviously cannot see, but he's now dedicating that sort of energy into whatever he's doing behind that desk. And I kind of found that sort of fascinating as a sort of contrast with everything else going on.
3: Indeed. Same with the sequences with, and these are actually, most of them are quite hilarious. The scenes with the, uh, little girls sometimes and teenage girls like running away from their houses. There's like a hilarious <laughs> sequence with a little girl who comes out with a suitcase and a cat under one arm and like yes. march, marches off into the square <laughs> very determined. And it's the same kind of thing where like you can read that sort of as I mean I've read, I forget who said this but some critic described it as like them being pulled by the allure of the city at night which is a lovely way to put that but it's also like yes again there could be some narrative there and there can be, maybe there's some way to read it in relation to love or like teenage Love. i think one girl one teenager does meet up with a, a young man um but again it's not the film doesn't give that to you so these questions of sort of like what are these quote-unquote like odd sections out doing in relation to the overall structure is really left up to you to sort out
1: it's uh i i also find it interesting how like when i was saying earlier that calling it a series of vignettes felt wrong i guess it's because it feels quite unified despite mm. like it's really quite something and I, I guess it's mostly because the the aesthetic is so strong but like you never get I never felt this a sense of disjunct hopping, yeah. from, hopping between this. Maybe it, maybe it, it helps also that it's so many characters mm. that the film kind of trains you out of trying to see it as a, as a series of uh, of, of indiv- individual isolated incidents or whatever. But I, I think also the one thing that keeps it somewhat linear is the, is the fact that you get a sense of a night progressing into morning
3: mm.
1: um, pretty explicitly. Um, which does help give the whole thing quite a bit of order.
3: It's true. And and people have spoken about that in relation to um, the kind of tropes that are usually used to organize the city symphony film, right? The idea that you're showing an entire city over a course of a day or a night, right? Man with a Movie Camera is one of the more famous examples. And there, the idea of time is the unifying principle that ties all of these people in the kind of disparate spaces within the city together. So you understand it as a sort of unity. So on the one hand, there's the time thing, which is interesting again, in terms of the kind of like rhythm of night and day, because we'll have a chance to talk about that more with the second film. But um, so time on the one hand, but then also space. And I feel like this is something I noticed much more clearly going back to the film this time is the way that Ackerman is using both editing to kind of tie, as you say to Simon, to kind of unify the sections, but then also the, the spaces in which things are filmed. And um, I can give some of the information about this here. So it, and I, I'll be interested to know if you, if, I mean, I'm sure Caden has caught it because he's seen it so many times, but um, if you guys sort of picked up on some of this stuff. So there, the film is shot in three different neighborhoods in Brussels, which is of course Ackerman's hometown, um, or home city, uh, and the neighborhoods are the Rue de Mimimes, Mimimes, uh, which is a working class, uh, mostly immigrant neighborhood to the north, apparently, um Arab dominated neighborhood in the north. The second neighborhood is the Place de la Vie Al Oblé which is the um, square that you you see repeatedly people looking down on and people walking across the square. Uh, that's a kind of more affluent but still mixed neighborhood. And then uh, another neighborhood called Valkendal, which is the middle class uh, suburban neighborhood where Ackerman's parents live. So the majority of the filming takes place just in these three neighborhoods um, and as uh, the, the cinematographer Caroline Caroline sorry Caroline Champetier puts it it's kind of a, a tri- like a George Meldigesian trick to Make it seem like it's the entire city that's being captured. Um, and by the way, we haven't mentioned Caroline uh, Champetier yet, but she is um, deserves some credit here. So she shot the film, um, and she and the film looks beautiful. And we should talk a little bit more about the aesthetic as well. But she has worked with uh, figures like uh, Jacques Rivette, and. Um, Uh, Godard. And recently she's been working with Karak. She shot Leo's Karak. She shot Holy Motors and uh, Annette recently. So yeah, so she's still she's doing really interesting stuff as well. So I just wanted to shout out to her. But yeah, the question of space. I mean, I think it to me, I was quite fascinated to realize in the latter section of the film this time, that many of the characters live in the same building, which you only realize when you get the shot back up from the square and you see all three people looking down at the square and you realize that it's all three characters you've been following in the sequence. Um, and then, you know, there's various things like that building, I believe, is... Um, at least part of it is owned by Marilyn Wattelag, Ackerman's producer. And then other sequences that they shot, they shot in Ackerman's parents' homes, at uh, home and the friend, friends of Ackerman's parents' homes. Um, and so in a certain sense, it really was a kind of home movie. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's that's super fascinating. But anyway, so this idea of space is actually maybe more of a unifying principle than is t- totally obvious at the beginning. I found fascinating.
2: Yeah. And again, the kind of sort of relationships to either being of one person in a space or multiple people in a space. And, and again, how you are trying to sort of negotiate with the other person in either sharing the space or, or what, or expressing your feelings. Yeah. There's these relationships to sort of space and also just in, just sort of walking around the city where you just kind of sense there is this, tension of wanting to sort of turn a new leaf in mm, some way yeah. for some of these people that I also uh, am really moved by whenever I watch it.
3: The woman who leaves her husband with a suitcase and is walking around the whole town, she's wearing like a white suit um, and she goes to a hotel and then she ends up before dawn coming back and getting back into the bed with the husband that one always really gets me i mean i've also heard people mention um i think it's marcia kander who mentions the fact that you know the film maybe also implies that like these kinds of actions and narratives are could be happening every night it's like that these are there's an almost like yeah a repeating quality to them or like they're kind of not stuck in time it's yeah it's, it's hard to explain but it's great
1: well, and there's maybe there's something to that in terms of like why I respond, wh- why I responded so well to this film, because there's something beautiful about how sort of banal and ordinary these just a regular night in Belgium, you know?
3: Yes. Yeah, indeed. It's um. I mean, and this is this sort of gets to another kind of maybe tension at the heart of the film is the pull between naturalism or a kind of like. Representative, like the documentary kind of pull on the one hand and then the 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 very like theatrical pull on the other hand of this film because there is a sort of aspect here where as you say simon like the specificity of these characters all of the this the elements of it the fact you know the different costumes that they're wearing the kind of class signifiers there is a way in which the film almost presents itself as a kind of um cousin or something to the like sociological sociological ish documentaries of the um like left bank uh French New Wave. So I'm thinking like Jean Rouge and Edgar Moran's Chronicle of a Summer or um Chris Marker's uh Jolie May, which are these films that that interview often, you know, casts of like 80 people that, that they meet on the streets and they ask them questions and they talk about and they and from this, there's this sort of implication that you're getting a kind of sampling view of the larger society. Um, And and there's this idea of sort of objectivity or something in that, which, which realistically this, this, the Verite films undercut anyway, but there is this sort of trajectory that I think the film is drawing on, on the one hand with that impulse. But then on the other hand, the film is (laughs) constantly kind of pushing against that because it is so theatrical. It's like it's shot very much with this sort of chiaroscuro um, color palette of blues and grays and then like pops of reds and pinks sometimes. So it looks really specific. Um, And then the theatrical stuff comes through as well in both the... Elements of melodrama, which we haven't talked about yet, but I do want to t- mention melodrama here a little bit and talk about that a bit more on the one hand, and then also the influence of um, the dancer Pina Bausch on uh, Ackerman's practice at this point. And originally, we had it scheduled for the podcast, so that we were going to talk about Ackerman's documentary Um one day, Pina asked me earlier than we would talk about this film, but we had to move things around. Um, so, I we won't talk about Pina Bausch too much here because we'll have a chance to do that more later. But she is um, a very, very influential German dancer and choreographer who is credited with inventing this uh, inventing credited with designing this this sort of paradigm called uh tans theater or dance theater um that is sort of a very like emotionally performative um form of uh modern dance and ackerman was familiar with pina's with her work and had seen it and was very affected by it and it is very clear that 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 work is present in this film like you can absolutely see it in the way that the characters this kind of highly emotive and highly weighted form of gesture um, particularly in the way that they dance with each other this kind of like I don't know how to say it. It's like they're almost throwing themselves around in this almost dangerous way with each other. Like the way they pitch themselves at each other in these like dramatic embraces is very peanut-boge.
2: The embraces are just going so hard. And it's (laughs) it's, like, I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to say it's violent because it's full of like so much affection, like the Mm -hmm. opposite of like, violent malicious intent but it just like goes hard and again it can be jolting at times when you see it because it just feels contrast to these kind of mundane very quiet moments where Mm -hmm. it's just filled with ambience and all that so yeah Mm -hmm. i definitely yeah the pina bausch doc i actually have not seen but i but i have obviously read on sort of her influence on ackerman's work
3: Mm. um well then you'll you, you can watch it when we talk about it on this podcast. <laughs> <Can't wait. laughs> um sorry simon what were you gonna say
1: uh, well, as long as we're talking about things unifying this film, we c- we cannot go without mentioning doorways and stairwells. Ah,
3: Yes. Well, this is why I was going to talk about melodrama. Um, uh, but sorry, did you have more things you wanted to say about doorways and stairwells before I jump
1: in? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know that I have anything to say other than there's sure a lot of them.
3: <laughs> I mean, for me, and it's funny because I actually don't think I've seen, I, I haven't certainly haven't read everything that's been written about this film, but I haven't seen anybody mention this. Um yeah, is the fact that to me that that the fact that so many of the the shots in the film are organized around doorways, around people kind of crossing through doorways, uh, looking out of windows, yeah, moving up and down stairs, is such a direct reference to the language of melodrama from you know Douglas Sirk through like Fassbinder and others, but this kind of classical Hollywood idea of the emotionally fraught space of like the domestic experience um, the idea of these kind of heightened moments. Right. I mean, what we're referencing here is things like in Douglas Cirque cinema, it's like whenever there's a really heightened moment of expression that needs to be expressed to the audience, but maybe can't be verbalized. It usually involves characters like going to a doorway dramatically or looking out a window dramatically or marching up and down stairs dramatically. It's, it's like a visual um, lexicon from melodrama. And this of course connects to sort of feminist questions as well, because if Ackerman is sort of again invoking the structural film paradigm here, it is to sort of bring its to bring it to bear on something like melodrama and romance, which are often considered you know, somewhat trivial because of their historic association with female audiences, with women viewers, um, and the fact of, like, taking this structural film paradigm and bringing it to bear on this in this, like, very serious way, um, I mean, it's fascinating. It's, it's like, yeah, it's fascinating.
1: Kate, you're such a good podcast partner because I can be like, how about those doors? And then... (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> but see the real the secret here Simon is is that I make a billion notes and then I can't remember half the stuff I wanted to talk about and then you ask one like good thing and I'm like oh right yes <laughs> stairs <laughs> but yeah the melodrama thing I just the colors and everything here to me it is just it is a movie it's a movie very much about melodrama even if I think the question of whether it is melodramatic is like an open question I mean I don't know I don't know if people, how people feel about that
1: I don't know if I'm qualified to say whether this qualifies as melodrama. But...
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't feel qualified either, but there are certainly melodramatic flourishes in the certain yeah. scenes.
1: And also I'm brave
2: enough to go there. <laughs> and
1: the, I would say also that the, um, we haven't talked about the sound and music in this movie yet.
3: No, we um, haven't. Oh, because, the and, music.
1: and we have to, because as, as beautiful as it is to look at, there's some really interesting choices happening here. Um, and, so in, in, a, in a couple of key sequences, the needle drops really amplify the sense of melodrama, um, but also are, um, you know, we talk about talk about city symphonies. Uh, we're going to have to talk more directly about the ending pretty soon, but um, there is a key moment or a key, I guess, section of, of uh, the closing sequence where we do have this wonderful song um that 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 takes up most of the uh most of the audio spectrum but all but it's undercut by the increasingly present mm. sounds of traffic um which goes sort of alongside it and then of course ultimately um executed completely with a one untimely phone call um or rather one un- one untimely ringing of a telephone there's a lot happening in the audio realm um even separate from the visuals
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that like, after doing five episodes of this podcast now, I'm much more trained to pick up on is Ackerman's um, kind of music concrete approach of building um, soundtracks of diegetic noise that are clearly constructed, right? It's like the traffic is very important here, the kind of echoes of city life. There's one sequence where you have a man sitting at a window, and you hear a kind of like, I think, sort of not quite scream, but like a loud noise from a woman outside. And so there's this implication that there's a narrative happening outside that you can only hear through the sound. And no, I mean, the the audio kind of the audio elements of the film are very important. And I think the other aspect of it, too, the music usage here particularly, is the repetition of the music, right? The fact that the song, which is called, I think, "L'amore." perdonera maybe um it's so good that song ah um it plays many many times throughout the film it's playing right at the beginning of the film faintly um and it's sort of overwhelmed by like maybe there's some classical music playing and traffic noises as well it plays again at one of the other uh, choreographed dance sequences in the bar where there's this very small teenage-ish looking girl dancing with a very tall man at the bar she like can barely reach his neck which is a very funny sequence um and then yeah it comes back again at the end and I, there is something there's, again, this kind of self-referential commentary, I think, in that about the fact that, like, it, it isn't just that these are um, sequences that are being put next to each other as if they're all different. It's the fact that, like, gestures repeat throughout and they build up and accrue more meaning as they go through. Right. Like the gesture. I've, I've seen people reference the gesture of the um, a man grabbing a woman's elbow. Like that that happens multiple times throughout the film and it's like each time it has a slightly different version of it um, and you look for it and you read it a little differently but it's like the music cues us in that same kind of way right it's like every time the song comes back on we have a slightly different maybe deeper reaction to it And by the time it gets to the end you're just like oh my god this is incredible <laughs> at least for me anyway
2: sometimes I just want to be an active listener <laughs> which is great to have on a podcast for a minute
3: Yes, um, we invited you on to come and listen to us talking. You no, know, I, I do, I do,
2: <laughs> yeah, and I do sort of love the motif of the, of the song, of the music happening, and yeah, again, I did kind of mention this earlier about sort of the ambiances and diegetic sounds of both the jukebox and the, in di- the sort of diner scenes, and also that lovely scene with the couple who are watching television, oh. and, and, um <clears throat> you just hear sort of the sounds and the sort of static and stuff. And it's just like, and he's about to fall asleep. It's just a very sort of sweet sort of couple scene. And I'm sure you can easily sort of see how a different director can sort of concoct an almost identical scene of sort of this married couple and domesticity and have it have a different kind of, feeling and mood to it, but there's just something so pure in a way about it that I again, it's just like one of those very sort of lovely sort of moments. And obviously their story also it's it's just a very precious, precious interaction you have with the with that couple.
3: Uh her asking him to go out to dance in yeah. the city and him saying yes, like unreservedly. It just, it's just it's like too much. I mean I think this is I, I mean, I kind of meant to ask you guys sort of more generally about like what your emotional experience of this film is because I think again, it's a sort of interesting question to have a film without consistent characters in it, and yet Ackerman can conjure up like such emotional experience in the space of like you know four or five shots. It's incredible.
1: I didn't find myself having an acute emotional response until the very last scene. Interesting. Um, before that, it was kind of like more of a mood piece, but then something about the that sequence really got to me um i would i would actually say it's probably the only scene in the film where you might actually want subtitles slash i think that like the dialogue might clue you in on layers that you wouldn't pick up on this whole thing about describing the, the man who is not present who kind of like what a cl- classic classic ackerman move yet another uh, wonderful structuring absence or whatever um to have this whole thing revolve around the figure not present and then Ha- and to have that um the unabashedly emotional music cue with the with the traffic sounds and then having it having the spell broken with a simple telephone call i mean that to me like with the, sort of that's if if i if i had to explain if i wanted to try to pinpoint a theme that kind of unifies the the movie um i would have to say it has something to do with um like the spell of night and the spell of of uh of interaction and 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 sort of trying to you know trying to keep the spell going or like or finding yourself on the outside of it or suddenly on the inside as we talked about sort of with these jolts in the interactions um that to me is just is a really powerful um everything about that that's that uh that last sequence really um she just nails endings man and (laughs) Uh this this one has has a has a gut punch of an ending or, or at least it did for me.
3: Ugh, yeah, I mean I feel like I have a lot to say about the ending, but there was two things that popped up to me there that you were saying Simon that we haven't talked about yet. One of which is um you know the connection of this film to something like surrealism through maybe the sort of broader idea of like the dream or the space of night as the space where social order opens up a little bit and things might shift and possibilities might open themselves. And I think the film explores that maybe the most obviously in women leaving men in a way that they might not be able to do during their kind of regular routine lives. Um, but then of course it, there's a thunderstorm at the end, the heat breaks and the morning comes and things sort of revert back. Although there's still some like, you know, romance that happens in the morning too, but mostly things sort of revert, revert back. Um, so yeah, this kind of, oh, and this realism thing as well, I wanted to mention there's um, Catherine Fowler has written about this film and the question of sort of whether it's a kind of Belgian text in the way that the other city films, um, Ackerman's, the earlier one, News From Home, is a kind of New York city film. And then Night and Day, which we'll talk about later, is a sort of Paris city film. And what it would mean to think about this film that way. And I mean, you know, she makes some interesting points. I think she she sort of argues that Ackerman is kind of drawing on aesthetics and uh modes from Belgian painters and uh I mean she mentions Jacques Brel the singer but I think more explicitly she's interested in painters like René Magritte and um oh my goodness and Paul Delvaux I forgot I'm forgetting the names I think it's Paul Delvaux um but anyway this sort of idea that like yeah just again the kind of notion of surrealism is like the question of like activating the dream of a space where the social order isn't so oppressive. I think it's like, I, you know, I think that's just the simplest way to kind of sum up maybe the connections here. Oh, and then the ending too. Sorry. So yeah, Simon, the ending. Um, I, Yeah. It's funny that you had such a strong emotional reaction to the ending. I, I kind of dimly remember it from seeing it before and it's, it's Aurora Clements um, and she's involved in this sort of love triangle with two men And yeah, she's with one of them at the end. I think it's the, it's the lover, right? It's not her partner. It's the partner who calls. Yeah. Um, and there's this sort of like running dialogue throughout it where she's describing the other man and the phone rings and she answers. Yes, yes, yes. Like I think eight times and then hangs up the phone and they, and the man like pull the man who's there then pulls her down into an embrace on the bed, which for my money is a direct reference to, um, James Benning's film 11 by 14 from 1976, which if people haven't seen is an incredible film. Um, And I I do think that Ackerman has likely seen it. And I think that this film is playing with very similar um, questions that 11 by 14 is 11 by 14 is also a structural film and it's investigating like questions of narrative and sort of what makes a narrative and how to kind of like, represent a narrative and it follows it's a road film sort of and you follow characters and they sometimes appear in shot sometimes not it, it really breaks down and sort of investigates what is narrative in every scene but anyway you have a long very long take of a couple lying on a bed in exactly the same <laughs> frame and shot that they are at the end of this film um but anyway that's all i will say about that but um but yeah it's interesting that you had such an emotional reaction to it simon um yeah
2: i definitely had like images have sort of been imprinted on me from that film in a way that they're like, obviously it's a visual medium, but like that's sort of stick with me and I sort of have an emotional attachment I would suppose with it. But yeah, when I think of like having the emotional response of some of the, like one of the first sort of couples to have this sort of very abrupt sort of embrace that did to me again, sort of feel like this sort of jolt. I sort of think of that Think of the couple scenes, the couple scene with the television, and then they go out dancing, as you said. It's just so sweet. And as far as the sort of dream elements that you mentioned, Kay, I was kind of thinking about how the sort of oppressiveness is something that can be sort of, you kind of think of as happening in the daytime. And while these people are at night, they're awake. They're in many ways very restless, but also kind of very in some cases docile. They're kind of sort of almost meditating in these sort of spaces of what they should be doing if what they want to do is something that is reciprocated by somebody else. So yeah, I think of the very sort of almost cinephile turn of phrase, awake in the dark, of sort of just of just sort of just thinking about. What, what can you do to sort of move along in a way, and and yeah, and, and I guess that kind of connects to all these shots and these sort of stairwells and sort of doorways of trying to move to the next station.
3: Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's the sort of the the migration and movement theme of Ackerman's work more broadly. Totally, yeah. We haven't yet talked about the kind of question of of speech here, um, which does, I I think, is important in the ending because you do get a fair bit of, as you say, Simon, like dialogue, you might want subtitles for the last uh, section there. But yeah, the question of speech, I mean, I think this is uh, super interesting, right? Like to make a film about romance and about love and to have it be almost devoid of speech where... I think so. Com- it's so common to think in the kind of like you know Western art historical uh, representations of love, like the idea that, and literary representations of love, that that like really what love is about is one private interiority expressing itself through language and being understood by another private interiority. And Ackerman's vision of that is quite different. And I think it, it's interesting because people have compared this film uh, *Tutunui* to. A famous book by the literary and cultural critic Roland Barthes uh, called The Lover's Discourse from 1977, I think, where Bart is uh, like extrapolating uh, phrases and, and terms that have been written about love, kind of like pieces of, of writing, um, as well as writing from his own experience about love to kind of like, again, break down love into these pieces of sort of discourse, this kind of, um, yeah, again, a sort of analysis but again there it is so much about language it is about the idea of the kind of forlorn lover the the lover wanting the other and i i feel like it is just a very different thing in ackerman's film it isn't it isn't about interiority it isn't about like the need to sort of like express your private thoughts or something it is about the body it is very much about a kind of like human Bodily set of needs and interactions, which I think is is emphasized by like the sweatiness of everybody in the movie because it's this hot night. Um, and then, yeah, also the just sort of desire and that being a kind of very physical thing that maybe isn't about language. And I think this is maybe the most obvious the tension that she's drawing out here in the characters who show up late in the film, who are one of the three people in the apartment building that's all stacked on top of each other, and they're the kind of couple that have fallen out of love and they're lying next to each other in bed. And they're some of the only characters who kind of speak at length to each other. Uh, and yeah, what comes out of this is that they've fallen out of love and there's, and they, you see them again later and they sort of bump into each other very awkwardly and stand at their own separate windows. And, you know, the implication being that like language comes in when love has ended or when desire has ended. And I think that's going to be important for the next film too. But, um, but Yeah. As
1: long as we're talking about speech, Kate, I have one last sort of trivia question for you. Is that, and is that Ackerman behind that door, speaking through the uh, speaking through the sliding door or whatever in that one scene? Because it really sounds like her.
3: I mean, it might be I, I, if this is the scene you're thinking of. Is it the scene where it's Ackerman's mother outside, leaning yeah. against the wall, smoking a cigarette? Well, then it probably is Ackerman. I don't know for sure, but it probably is her.
1: <laughs> it's like a little nod to the uh, to the Chantel Ackerman cinematic universe. There,
3: yes, exactly. There's another
1: big one in the movie we're about to talk about. <laughs>
3: It's true. But yeah, that's important that, that Ackerman's mother, this is her first appearance uh, on film in it. And you also, the other person we haven't mentioned who turns up as one of the other few professional actors in it is um, Yann Decourt, who played the son in John Dielman. He is one of the male characters that you see walking around he comes out of his apartment building i think and goes to another woman's door and knocks on it and she says not tonight so there you go <laughs> to see john dealman's son a little more grown up
2: a little more uh, grown up but maybe a, as much as a little shit so <laughs> <room. laughs>
1: final feature this month is Nuit et Jour or Night and Day from 1991. Um, so we're going from about 80 characters to really just three, even though this this has the connective tissue of being very much about uh, hot summer nights in the city and uh, love and romance and uh, possibly how t- talking may or may not signal the death of romance. Um <laughs> There is uh, a, a, so much separating these films as well. Um, and I think uh, it sounds like, Caden, it was your first experience with the movie and it was also mine. So I actually, I'm actually curious, Kate, about whether this was your first experience.
3: No, I had seen this film. Uh, I forget when exactly. I think I watched it at some point while I was doing my master's degree. And I can do my, you know, what lacked me two episodes ago or whatever, called uh, Guilty Confession. I really didn't like Night and Day <laughs> when I saw it the first time. I have not gone back to it since. Um, so rewatching it now is the first time I'd seen it in, I don't know, probably 10 years. And I, I yeah, we can dig into more how my reaction to it has changed, but um, because it has changed. I do feel differently about it now than I did yeah. at the time. But I, I don't, it's hard to say like why I reacted to it so negatively. At the time, I just remember, I just felt like it was kind of, empty or something. It just felt like it was sort of using signifiers from Ackerman's films, but in a way that didn't break any new ground or didn't really grab me in any way. didn't feel kind of like emotionally engaging at all. Didn't feel, uh, yeah, I don't know. But I do feel like I have since this is one of the great things about doing a podcast since having the like excuse to do a lot of research about the film and read what other people have said about it and just thinking about it more deeply. I do think there is actually much more going on here than I had originally thought, but yeah, that was my original take on it so I'm interested or maybe a bit trepidatious to hear how you guys found it
2: it's definitely more writerly yeah in a way obviously with um narration and a lot more dialogue it kind of helped fill me in a little because I can't believe I didn't mention I write for reverse shot but I do write for reverse shot and one of the essays I have actually done about Chantal Ackerman was in her kind of it's kind of regarded almost as a misbegotten but i kind of like it where she did a movie with william hurt and julia binoche called the couch in new york which is very much a sort of old hollywood screwball send-up and this kind of this film kind of helped me sort of fill in oh this was sort of the kind of in between of Mm -hmm. sort of the output because there is a kind of very old fashioned sensibility and the sort of bifurcation of day and night represented by the two young men in the life of this woman and yeah like i it's it was always going to it was really have to be something for for me to have it equal uh all night long obviously but yeah it's it's obviously a little more determined in what it is and that's fine with me, but I liked it, but, but it's not necessarily my favorite Ackerman. Yeah. I, I'll be up, for, you know, I don't think
1: of this podcast as the uh, Kate and Simon and guests review Chantel Ackerman films, you know, get to give, give it five popcorns out of five. <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I don't want to focus too much on like uh, my individual, you know, cr- critical response or whatever. But I will say of everything we've watched so far, this was the one I, I struggled the most with. Um, that said, I th- I mean, it obviously has a lot going for it, especially visually. I just find it so great. It's got so many great moments of framing and shooting um, that I just really loved to look at. Um, in terms of what the screenplay and char- and and characters are up to, um, I, I, I struggled a bit more with that in terms of... I guess I couldn't quite parse... I had some guesses as to what I thought Ackerman was up to conceptually, but all the guesses seemed to contradict each other. And at the end of it, I I I, I had a difficult time parsing the parsing the intent. Despite as Caden said, uh, the movie being so determined uh, to uh, to get something across. Uh, so I, I personally that, and also I think. You were talk you also mentioned, Caden, something about where it was sort of what was going on in your life when you saw a particular Ackerman film. And maybe it's just on a superficial level, I've just been having too many conversations with people about the ethics of non-monogamy. <laughs> and uh and I, it's also just it's such a hot button issue right now that I just watching this, I was like, oh, this again.
2: <laughs> honest yeah, honestly, maybe if this film was open about the fact that having two boyfriends is great, I would completely go <laughs> with it. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, I think it—it it kind of is. I mean, I think a little,
2: but, a little, But there shouldn't be tension. It should just be, it should just be an agreement. That. But this not- is
3: <laughs> this is what's fascinating about it. I think this is interesting. Is like, I mean, it's just or one of the things that's interesting about it is that I think she, the character of Julie, played by. um Oh, how do you say her name? It's like Guilaine Landez, I think. Uh, I think she, that character is very much on board with this idea. It's the male characters that create problems. And I, we, we, we can build up to that because there's things to say about that. But... Um, but yeah, I was gonna say maybe it's just some background for the film again. So yeah, I, I mentioned earlier they talk about this question of accessibility. Um, you know, Ackerman, as she turned towards working in the '80s and and then still into the '90s, she she always had this bent where she wanted. To be able to reach a wider audience, um, this was there sort of from the early on point in the '80s. You know, she always makes this joke about wanting to have a kind of box office hit, um, both because like Hollywood people and other film producer people tell her that she should have one, but also because it would make her father happy. You know, she also said this box <laughs> office hit. That's
2: why a couch in New York happened.
3: Exactly. Oh, yes. Perfect. There's <laughs> this this kind of like my, this trend in her work towards the the popular cinema is very much from this. But then there's also this question of like her, her drive to have a wider audience to like reach more people. There's a question about sort of what, what whether that kind of forces her into particular kinds of choices. Right. And it's like the idea that she I think she gave an interview around the time of, of night and day where she said, you know, nobody wants to watch anything more, anymore if it's not, quote, accessible. And so there is this sense at a certain point with different um, films in Ackerman's career that she's kind of like trying to figure out what is accessible while maintaining something of her kind of more experimental interests. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I, I do think that this film maybe is not the most successful thing she's ever made, but I do think there's some interesting stuff in it. And I think it it wasn't obvious to me at all the first time watching it, but um, But yeah, well, the other thing I just wanted to say as background here, too, is that the film was co-written with uh, Pascal Bonitzer, who is a critic for, uh, Kaie Cinéma. was a critic back in the day, but he was also a writer and actor and director. Uh, He co-wrote Ackerman's film, Golden 80s, which we haven't talked about yet, but comes between these two films. Um, And he also worked a lot with Rivette. He he co-wrote, uh, Rivette's film *Gang of Four and *La Belle Noiseuse* basically in the same year as um, *Night and Day*.
2: Without knowing that I was going to make a Rivette reference, because this is totally *Twilight*. Do I? Interesting. It's *Night and Day*, *Moon and Sun*. It's a, it's a duel between the two cab, taxi cab drivers representing <laughs> the night, the light and the sun, the moon yeah, and the that's sun. True.
3: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the connection with Duel. That's great. Um
2: I was going I was gonna make a bad joke that they should just have a they should literally just have a duel. I'll it. <laughs> <laughs> Just like in the Red Dead film. <laughs> it's
1: it's kind of funny to imagine that a duel is taking place several blocks back as she's walking
3: away. <laughs> well yeah, so we we also maybe can describe the plot here for people who haven't seen the film. Um so it opens with this uh, this couple, Julie and uh, Jack. Uh, I don't have that actor's name in the front of my head, but but Jack, and uh, they live in this small apartment in Paris. Or actually, a pretty big apartment by Paris standards. Oh
0: yeah, uh, yeah, a yeah. very
3: big apartment. And very they've nice come. Apartment. <laughs> yeah, it is a nice apartment, and they they've come from the provinces. It's sort of implied, uh, and they live in this kind of state of like childlike bliss in this apartment. They're kind of very wrapped up with each other physically, romantically. Uh, They're just in love. And Jack drives a cab. This is only he has a job. He drives a cab at night. Uh, And at the beginning of the film, as our narrator, who is Ackerman, which is a, this kind of like self-referential uh, thing. And I'll talk more, more about the narration in a bit, but she, um, as she tells us, Julie walks around the city of Paris at night. Uh, there's a really, there's a really like great sequence early on where she walks around um, at the neighborhoods in Paris. It's like between the Place du Chatelet and the Place de la République. And so she's walking in this neighborhood and she's singing in this kind of like Jacques Demy-esque way about sort of like how what she likes walking around the city at night, she <laughs> yeah. likes being by herself, you know, it's like nothing will happen to her. Everything is sort of like beautiful and wonderful. Um, and then the kind of like development of the film though, is that at a certain point she meets the uh, this guy, Joseph, who is the other person who drives Jack's cab during the day. And she starts walking around the city with him at night. And then she, you know, puts the moves on him and they start a relationship. And as the film develops, you realize that it's like, no one in this film follows human rhythms. I don't think you ever see anybody eat. Julie stays up all the time. Sleep is like a a thing to be avoided, actually, at all costs. And there's this kind of fairy tale quality to to sleep being the thing that might break this spell again, um, which is maybe an interesting reversal of the previous film. But uh, but yeah, so this like rhythm of night and day. And um, yeah, this kind of like... expansive love and, and I have more to say about it but but that's <laughs> anybody wants to jump in there they can
1: I just want to quickly mention Jack is played by uh, Thomas Langman and Joseph is played by Francois Negret Langman I just I just realized via my Wikipedia qu- uh, clicking around was an Oscar nominee 2 years later
3: Well and they also and they look quite similar the two actors like they have very similar physicalities they're quite like slim and um maybe a bit sort of feminine and their facial features uh, whereas Julie is quite like i mean i don't she's quite like physically um like i don't know how to describe. like well built i guess like she's just she has like a sturdy presence and it's quite as, as critics have pointed out it, it works very much in opposition to the sort of like ethereal kinds of um french actresses who are very much like au courant at the moment like juliette binoche um yeah she was supposed so- to
2: be the star of this film if i recall correctly she was now i'm trying mm. to imagine it yeah I don't-
3: Simon are you sure I'm not sure I haven't heard that anywhere where did you hear that
1: I'm gonna you know what after we're done editing I'm gonna double check and I'm gonna edit all this out if I'm wrong but I <laughs> swear to god I read in one of the essays in the in the handbook on Tutunmi that Binush was originally she this was supposed to be her original collaboration really? with Ackerman but she ended up having scheduling issues because of and again don't quote me on this Carax and a, a shoot going Long or being difficult
2: to sort of go back to the almost fairy tale logic of the way they're situated. I also thought of sort of the kind of lack of social realism in that way, uh, sort of with the fact that you're in, you're doing a very sort of blue collar job of cab driving. Maybe this is because many lives ago, I was a labor organizer for cab drivers. So I do kind of understand the very sort of unique hours they put in, which is literally like 12 hours on 12 hours off type of setup that they have to go through. I thought the sort of cab driver structure was unique, but obviously I'm young and vibrant. I'm coming from the country and going to hustle and bustle in the city. I will drive a cab that has a very kind of old-fashioned, very sort of old Hollywood, almost quality to sort of, to sort of, to that sort of situation.
1: Although it kind of clashes with the, I mean, I assume on purpose in some way, it clashes with the giant apartment that they live in. And also the fact that uh, Julie doesn't seem to do anything except hang out with these two men.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's true. The like, I think this is sort of like a thing that really stands out in the film the first time you watch it. And going back to it with a bit more context, <clears throat> it made more sense for me this time. But yeah, the fact that like this world that they live in really does not open on to kind of social reality in any way. And and the film really highlights this. It's like they lock, they kind of like hide themselves in their apartment Uh, all the time. They don't have, uh, like, anytime neighbors come to knock on their door to ask them for anything, they immediately shut them out. You know, when Julie walks around the city at night, she doesn't engage with anybody else, really. I think you see some men, like, try to talk to her at one point, and she just keeps walking. But so this idea that, like, they're closing the whole world out in order to kind of maintain this um. yeah, pre-Lapsarian state they live in is, like, important, I think. And I think the, the reason that it makes a bit more sense for me going back to it this time is getting to read uh, critics who've written about the film um, talking about the fact that Ackerman is, like, very knowingly engaging with uh, both contemporary and historical references to French cinema traditions. And the fact that, like, here, she's kind of both participating in, but maybe also refuting a little bit the trend towards the sort of like cinema du look, uh, kind of neo romantic streak in French cinema at this point, like in the '90s, which is signal like signaled by people like Leos Carax and. Um, Oh, other filmmakers that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but *Cracks* is maybe one of the better known ones in in North America with the idea that in those films, there is a really marked trend towards kind of like centering them on the young, young lovers, um, sort of like not dealing with kind of social reality, or if you do, it's really only ever depicted through the relationship between the young lovers and then being kind of apolitical, right? Like this is sort of one of the criticisms of that, that mode of filmmaking. And so Ackerman's film, it's like this question as to whether, Yeah, that that she's both, I think, sort of directly invoking that and commenting on it in the extent that I think by the time you get to the middle section of the film, this kind of space that they're living in of um, trying to maintain like exclusion of the outer world actually starts to feel really oppressive. Like it really does feel like a bit of a cage that they're having to maintain. So I think there is some awareness about this. And and just to finish the thought, the other kind of references to the sort of filmic traditions from Paris are her dealing very much with a kind of French new wave. Uh, the film has various references to this. I think the, um, I mean, not only, we haven't mentioned this yet, but the whole film is structured as a kind of response to uh, Truffaut's uh, Jules and Jim, which, and I'm, who am I? There's a critic who has written about this kind of extensively. Oh, uh, Jeanette uh, Vincent Do, I think. Writes about the fact of the film being very much a kind of like refutation of what Jules and Jim is doing, where you have uh, the Jean Moreau character, Catherine, who's also in a love triangle with two men. But that in that film, Catherine is very much this kind of like slate for the projection of the fantasies of the two men. She's sort of compared to other women. She like grows increasingly insecure in relation to the men's desires. And then it sort of like ends badly. Um, and that's very much the opposite here, like this very much inverted in this film. So you have. That that reference french and wave there's there's lines of dialogue that come from like i think Delphi- delphine say rig and stolen kisses um and yeah and that line like i am a woman i'm not an apparition uh is Jules and jim but um anyway and then the last uh, sort of
2: stolen kisses stolen kisses is i'm uh well i'm a woman not an apparition oh is
3: it oh okay i had that it's, wrong it's sorry
2: it's Del- delphine i'm okay yeah i i ha- and also just to continue and sorry for interrupting okay yeah, I've heard that, and I do kind of think of that. And I think in many ways she's trying to burst the bubble of Truffaut's sort of fantasy yeah. with Nero as much as, even more so than the sort of characters in uh, Oscar Werner and I forget who else, in Jules Jim. Yeah, I I, def- I definitely once reading that, I was like, oh, yeah, another famous sort of love triangle, but kind of one where it's it's kind of like The Graduate, where it's just kind of like the worst the, wor- the worst sort of people you know kind of project so much to that movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think this elucidates something that I I struggled with, at least on this first viewing, which is that Kate, you talked about how this movie kind of reverses the dynamic of Jules de Gim, where it's instead of a projection onto a woman, you kind of have the reverse where you yeah. have these two men who are kind of an interchangeable person.
3: Yes, exactly. Um,
1: Which I think was actually something I really struggled with in terms of like trying to figure out quite what she was. And the context does help because it's such a contrast to something like Les Rendezvous where every single character seems to have like a private universe in, in, in a history. It's very much not in that mode, um, even though like you might, you might think there's some like thematic commonality or whatever.
3: Yeah, it's true. The question of like the interchangeable men is an interesting one because like I I actually have seen people talk about them more as I've only seen people talk about them as linked in terms of like the similar physicalities. I've seen critics mention that, you know, actually their temperaments are kind of opposed. It's like Jack is very sunny and Joseph is very like dour and melancholic and sure, fine, whatever. But I agree with you, Simon. They do seem very interchangeable to me. And particularly by the time you get to the latter half of the film they both just seem very equivalent in terms of their kind of like putting pressure on Julie. Right. As like, as time goes by, both of them um, sort of put more demands on her. They want more from her. And this is what will increasingly mark the end of her relationship and this kind of like idyllic space with Jack and, and what sets off the breakdown is really important and we can come back to that. But yeah, the interchangeable men thing. I mean, on the one hand, Simon, I kind of agree with you that like, in Ackerman's other films that feature sort of, you know, fictional characters, even as much as Ackerman is often, like, refuting ideas of interiority, she always manages to kind of maintain a balance where you still feel like these characters have a private world that yeah. you, you don't have access to sometimes. I mean, it's that's a complicated generalization. But, like, I do feel like that is there sometimes. Whereas I think you're right. You really don't feel that with the male characters here. But I do think you maybe. I mean, I don't know. With Julie, it's an interesting question, right? It's like, I'm not so sure that it's really about an idea of her interiority. And in fact, you have her kind of saying things like, I don't like to think about things. And I Mm. thought thought is not, you know, necessary for me. And again, it's maybe more about sort of like her body and kind of bodily desire as like the actual important thing in the film, which maybe again is sort of signaled by the idea of like the interchangeable men, this, we'll do like a shout out to Lakshmi here with the psychoanalysis reference. This is like my one of my Lacan references is the um, like objet petit a, the idea of like the uh, unattainable object of desire. It's like the, this is what drives... Desire is like the fact that you have one thing and then you actually want the next thing, because really what you're chasing is the object, the like unattainable aspect of desire. It's not the specific thing. And I feel like the interchangeability of the men here kind of speaks to that. Maybe. Mm. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You get the sense that she wants to she, she wants to have all the feelings all the time. And that's really she's sensory driven. And the the fact of these men. Not just sort of acquiescing to her to, to to that arrangement is like really is the ultimate source of tension. It's it's difficult to I th- and Caden you you mentioned this earlier. It's um there's something about the tone of the film and like the way that it's written that I think makes it tough to um I think it's a little bit tougher to revisit the film from a contemporary angle for the exact reason that uh, that Caden mentioned, which is just that like nowadays the central conflict in the, in the film could probably be resolved with a simple modern conversation. And it's, it's, it is difficult to, to keep that out of your mind at all times. Although one thing that does help is um, the narration, which we haven't really talked about much. Um, but there's some, there's some little moments kind of sprinkled throughout her narration that kind of suggest that what we're seeing is not really what we're seeing. Like we're kind of seeing um, a, a retelling of something that she half remembers um, that wasn't her life. Like, there's a there's a moment where she says something about like, I think here they kissed, but we don't actually see it happen, uh, unless I'm wrong. This was another source of like interest, but also frustration to me was like, oh, so this this is also like it has another layer of distance to think about, to like uh, you know when when trying to when trying to sort of reverse engineer what exactly was the intent here, um, which kind of goes. Uh, kind of goes counter to some of the simpler pleasures in the movie like um or at least for me it did like for instance um there's some really funny scenes in this movie that i just need to give a shout out to specifically i love the visit from jack's parents (laughs) um this tremendously awkward like mid-coitus visit um that's a that's a very funny scene and i I, again i just want to give a shout out to ackerman's instincts for like written comedy
3: Yeah, it's true. And also the kind of like that cross-generational struggle there. Again, the bourgeois parents and the like free free love um, children. I mean, you know, and this is even something we haven't talked about yet either, but like the fact that Ackerman regularly kind of depicts particularly Jack and Julie as children, as like as if they live in this kind of, like, state before awareness. It's mm-hmm. like that they... And, next
1: and, year, uh, next year. Yeah,
3: next year, next year. And, like, and and I think Vincendo talks about them as kind of, like, the sense of them playing house and this, like, creating a yeah. like kind of, like, domestic Definitely. routine and repetition. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, like, I, I mean, which is maybe brings up some interesting points about what it means to, like, depict these uh, adults who are just like regularly sleeping together as childish or childlike i mean it's it's interesting right it's like fascinating well, um, it's I, I will say the that...
2: house where they are the husband and wife
0: yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> it's,
1: the, i will say there is something there's something there about like i don't know i remember being young and in and, and in the early the you know the early honeymoon stage of a relationship and i think this movie does capture really nicely um albeit in a slightly more complicated way the feeling of like you who you are with someone you i don't know i feel like it captures the cocooning and the sort of like um the way they sort of become a sing she kind of becomes a single entity with these men for when they're in sync that is until they sort of fall out of sync later in the film i think it really it, it captures that feeling of um of like this like my universe is the size of these four walls with this one person and um, the way, as you mentioned, that they they shut out the neighbors uh, for as long as they can uh, really reinforces that. And I, I I don't know, it's even in this movie that I wasn't like totally wild about. I do think there's still like some 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 unique and real um, dimensions that I've experienced showing up on screen.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think for me the the I mean, there's multiple aspects that I think are still really worth talking about with this film. Um, one, though, the first one is, yeah, it has to do with the fact that I think I missed a lot the first time watching this film about i don't know what ackerman is doing with the kind of biblical narrative of like the fall from grace like the fall from aiden because it's very much here like it's it's very much present in the film this idea that the first sections where jack and julie are very happy and then even still into the beginning when she starts sleeping with joseph this is this kind of like idyllic space before language in a certain sense it's like yes there is language people talk to each other, but really so much. It is about the kind of physical communion between bodies. It's about all your needs being met immediately. You don't even need to eat. Like they're not even human in these early episodes. They don't need to sleep. They don't need to eat. They like exist in this space before the fall. Right. And, Yeah, there's no distance between between anyone. All the bodies are always together. Again, in this kind of like Bausch way, you have the sort of uh, like embraces, dramatic embraces. But then, yeah, at a certain point, this shifts and there is the kind of fall that starts to happen. And... Language has to come into it more. Jack and Julie have to work to like speak to each other more and connect with each other. And then they start making these kind of like strange gestures in their language around things like Julie starts talking about her dreams as a way to express her feelings to Jack. And Jack starts wanting to invent talking about a sister he doesn't have. And like these kinds of strange things. And Joseph of course just becomes sort of more and more irritating as it goes on. He's so like possessive. But anyway, I think what's fascinating is that And I think I really missed this the first time around, maybe because it is so out of character with the rest of the film. But there is a sequence, I don't know, let's say prior to the halfway mark, I forget exactly where it falls, but it's still not too far into the film where, uh, Julie's been sleeping with Joseph for a little while and she's in the hotel room with him and she falls asleep for the first time ever. And, uh, there okay there's a whole bunch of strange stuff that happens in this in the way that the sequence is shot but the outcome of it is that joseph uh like climbs on top of her opens her legs and has sex with her while she's asleep this is the moment when things start to break down like this is the the, the where everything starts to fall apart and i think if you're just watching the film like the first time it's easy to miss it because it it is almost filmed in the same language as everything else even though well, that's not even true it's not filmed in the same kind of like sensual language that she filmed some of the earlier um like sexual encounters it's it's filmed very uh like it breaks up julie's body in this really interesting way it's like you see this really like kind of strange cuts to like her, her c- crotch for lack of a better term um and then yeah he like crawls on top of her and even prior to that there's a really strange sequence where um you see her like she's in the bed and she's sleeping And she turns like she she turns her head and the camera cuts. And so you're trained like, you know, continuity editing trains you to think that the next shot will be Julie turning over the rest of the way. But then instead, Ackerman has totally changed everything around so that the rest of the shot becomes Joseph's face. Mm -hmm. And it's Joseph looking back at her. And it took me a second to realize that they had been switched. And it's a very it's like really weird, uncanny, like scene of joseph imposing being imposed on julie's face just as he's sort of like imposing himself on her and yeah this idea is the kind of like i don't know for lack of a better like way of talking about it, it's like it like penetrates julie in this way that like breaks everything down it's like after that then the sleep sleep throws off her schedule and she's almost late get, getting back to um to Jack and then like the fairy tale spell has almost been broken. And then Jack starts to become suspicious and everything becomes bad after that. And to me, it's fascinating to take the idea of like the fall from Eden, the fall from this like perfect space of plenitude and write it not as being about the woman having taken something that she's not supposed to take, but the man having taken something that he shouldn't take, you know, like to me, that's fascinating. It's a thing that I completely missed the first time I watched the film.
2: I actually wanted to get back. Cause I did kind of like make, a brief sort of aside to it earlier on when we were talking about uh, all night long but i thought of G2L regarding this with Joseph and how i was kind of reminded of the trucker and yeah. and sort of the his sort of more blue collar sort of attitudes and background and also the crassness of, uh, and I think uh, the sort of scene that you mentioned, although very low key in how it's sort of presented, it it does completely color all your perceptions of him after that, even more so than what he, than what he says or how he reacts to other situations. But yeah, I thought of that and of how sort of in that earlier acumen, obviously he is quiet and then, Quiet some of the time, and it seems that is where some of the more sort of sweet sort of connection that Ackerman's character in that movie has. But then you sort of hear him talk, and you're like, Ooh, uh, you kind (laughs) of get a little skewed out by how he talks about his children and talks about his sort of life, and it's just like, Oh. Ackerman can sit by and sort of listen, but I'm not sure I I necessarily can. And we haven't even sort of mentioned the sort of hand job that happens. That happens. And wow. But yeah, Joseph reminded me of that. And obviously not just because of the class standing, but just sort of how he kind of does represent a sort of entitlement in a way. Kate, I have a question for you because it was something that I couldn't
1: quite figure out while I was watching it. Maybe it was one of my sources of like uncertainty is like, to what extent do you think Ackerman was interested in in this story as representing like a a concrete as being like an actual, among other things, like a set of questions or comments on like the way men and women separately process desire and jealousy and things like that versus how much is it just a reflection of her pet themes?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, How to say it? I mean, I think, oh, yeah, there's a lot there. Like, for the one thing that we haven't really talked about yet, too, again, is this idea that the film is very much engaged with the the turn and sort of like feminist thought, as I mentioned earlier, to, yeah, the question of like women's desire, female desire, how to free this desire that, you know, in in thinking like over the sort of like late 70s, 80s, had been very repressed, like really hadn't been able to kind of not only express itself in the world, but where like the idea that women hadn't been able to kind of understand it themselves. Um, And, you know, this is what sort of what consciousness raising groups and things were for, et cetera. Um, And so this kind of like turn towards sort of like centering women's desire. I think it's very much present in the film, right? The idea of Julie's desire is like the main driving force of it. But that being said, the film very much operates again in a kind of like theatrical mode. Uh, And so I'm not really sure that Ackerman is like making kind of like realist statements about, and I, and again, I don't think Ackerman was ever much of a sort of gender essentialist. Um, yeah. So I don't think it's like that cut and dry, but I do think that, yeah, she's both interested in the idea of women's desire, but then I think maybe what your question hints at is, I don't know that that there is a sort of lacking element here that it, it becomes a little too abstract or a little too um, disengaged from a kind of actual lived world. And, and I do think I still have some reservations about the politics of this film, <laughs> looking back at it, even though I do think there's maybe more to it than I originally thought. I'm a little hesitant about certain aspects of it that have to do with this kind of streak, but, uh, and I can talk about that more, but, but yeah, Simon, so, mean, I don't know. Does that get at what you were thinking?
1: I'm just glad that you're also not sure because it uh, or that you're that it also has like some open questions or some tensions that are maybe unresolved because that was sort of how I felt throughout the whole thing of like my there are times when I I could really vibe with the film and there are other times when I felt like my head was on fire because I was just, just work my brain was working so hard trying to figure out trying to like galaxy brain my way to figuring out like <laughs> exactly um exactly what 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 she's after
3: Yeah. I don't know. And again, I mean, maybe there is the sort of writerly question here too, where the there's so much
1: dialogue. Yeah. There is so
3: much dialogue. Like it is exhausting how much dialogue there is. It's this constant back and forth and it, but it doesn't have the kind of like, and, and she'll try to pick this up a little bit more in coach in New York where you have a bit more of the screwball, like rapid fire dialogue thing here. It doesn't really feel like that though. It just feels like a kind of wall of dialogue and it also, it all of it feels quite like loaded. Like you're supposed to be keeping up with all of it. But then, I don't know, the only way I could think to describe a lot of it was that it often feels maybe more increasingly as you get into the the latter two thirds where there is more dialogue. Um, it often feels like th- the men are trying to get something from her in the dialogue and the play- playfulness that she's using is often just a way to bat them away. It's like that there actually isn't much exchange between them in the, in the dialogue, if that makes any sense. So you don't really get much of a sense of julie's interiority you only really get a sense of and again why would you because ackerman's hesitant about those things but i just mean you get a sense of her as a kind of like reflection not reflection of the men it's like that her she exists in terms of what she is refusing from the men maybe in terms of what Mm -hmm. they're asking of her and not much beyond that and so the dialogue just becomes this sort of like very heavy weight on the film, I think.
1: Yeah, it's. I'm glad you mentioned Screwball and the connection to a film we haven't talked about yet, because that that whole sequence where she's talking to one of the men, I honestly forget which one, um, when she's talking to one one of the men, and he's talking, they're talking about, well, what if I had a sister, and then midway through that conversation, they're just pre- they're they're you know proceeding on the assumption that actually the sister is real yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff, and if and you just know, like with us with a different treatment, that could actually be a really funny sequence but that's not at all what it's going for um, but d- during that scene I did think of screwball comedy and I, I could imagine like a version of this conversation in like Sullivan's travels or whatever
2: it's it's sort of contrasting with, um, with all night long was just like overload of dialogue suddenly yeah. everyone's talking we even yeah. have a narrator <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was just sort of like oof, system shock and uh, when watching back to back it's definitely a sort of fascinating film, but I kind of think there is probably something. Perhaps, wh- like, I'll also have a similar experience of rewatching it like you did, where maybe I'll find something that is something a little more subversive within the text to kind of dive into. Because, in a way, like, I'm sure people can take this in earnest and think who are these bratty gentrifying children <laughs> who are taking over this loft and are just one of them is just out of hobby going to be a cab driver what is this and but i think there's definitely a little more thought obviously here
3: yeah but i i do think that these i think that this film may be particularly points out some blind spots in Ackerman's um, modes of operating. And this isn't even what I was going to say. I still have a larger point to make. But but what I was going to say is that, you know, this this film is set in Paris. And I think there is a kind of very clear way in which Paris is being depicted here, not as a sort of like... Realist, like totally realist depiction of the city, right? Again, she avoids like the tourist destinations. You really would have to know, know where you already are in the city to know what the neighborhoods are. And the neighborhood that she, they walk through, it's like it, part of it is central Paris. Um, apparently it sort of has a historic connection with the Jewish community in Paris, but it mixes like working class and and moral affluent. But you know, Paris is not a totally white city. And like, I, again, it's like even just... <laughs> It's not like there are a lot of other people in the background of this film. And in fact, Ackerman purposely cuts out a lot of them. Like whenever Julie buys a, a shirt for Jack, you don't see the face of the other person. So it's like Ackerman is very much sort of depopulating the um the background. And also, and again, I meant to say this before, she's she, the part of the theatricalization of Paris is her the kind of nods to the like poetic realist filmmakers of the 30s, so like Jean Renoir and uh, Jean Vigo and um oh renee claire figures who were sort of working with both this kind of like slightly concrete idea of paris but also a kind of like fantasy version of paris like this like created sets the painted views of paris which you get replicated here the view out of julian jack's window is like very not naturalist it's this very kind of like beautiful um i don't know if it's a painting or not but it's a very like beautiful image of paris um anyway so so this idea of like paris being kind of distant so again it's not meant to be a sort of like realist depiction of the city but yeah this idea of kind of like it just still is sort of strange to me that this that paris is very much depicted as like an exclusively white or exclusively white and and ethnically jewish city but that's sort of it um and anyway brussels too which is like I don't know. People have said that they see people of, of different ethnicities in Tuchinui, in but I didn't catch that on this viewing, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Maybe I just missed it. But um, anyway, so that's, yeah, something that I may be looking back at and it's like, okay, well, we'll keep talking about this, I guess, as we go on.
1: Since you mentioned uh, obscured figures, I just wanted to qu- give a quick shout out to one of the, my favorite and one of the weirdest moments in the film, which is when we have um, one of the men and with with uh, Julie in To driving their cab and there's two there's these shadowy literally described in the narration as shadowy figures in the background whose faces are obscured (laughs) and then there's a very strange moment when whoever's driving just for a second just drives like a fucking maniac and then the shadows are gone like he's shaking them off
0: oh interesting
3: it's,
1: it's like a really cool little moment that is almost feels like it's out of a different film but it's it's quite it's it's pretty nifty
3: yeah, that strange moment with the like driving is definitely it stands out. <laughs> it's strange. And, uh, um, there's
1: another aspect also of the apartment that I that we haven't mentioned that uh, deserves mention, which is the 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 architecture of it yeah. is quite unique. Where there's two sides of the this apartment is so huge that it's got like a U shape or something, and that you the the characters can observe each other from each window, and they can also traverse from one side to the other with a handy plank. Um, which felt like I wanted to see this set reused in a couple more films.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I saw people tie that uh, apartment specifically to a film by Renoir. I'm forgetting which one it is now, but, um, but yeah, that apparently there was an apartment with a very similar layout in a Renoir film. So I guess it's another one of uh, Ackerman's references here. Yeah. The deep cuts, but, um, but yeah, I mean, again, so we have the kind of like, this sort of postmodern aspect of this film, which we haven't talked about either, right the idea of it being a kind of reference to pre-existing texts and the play with the like you know high art low arts like cinema um I don't know mixing these things and the other um kind of maybe major aspect of this too that is the fact of the fairy tale framing here which which wasn't uncommon in kind of like feminist film uh, and i think art more broadly in this period or maybe even prior to this um sort of over the 80s is this idea of like yeah th- th- there's maybe a kind of there was a sort of pull towards looking back at fairy tales that are of course very often structured on like the male as the active figure either like absolute ignorance of the female <laughs> character or suppression or subjugation of the female characters um, or they're presented only as like children or mothers or whatever it is um and looking back at those and kind of, like, turning them on their head to rewrite them to kind of, like, activate sort of, like, you know, feminine energies or f- feminist desires or whatever it is. But, like, Ackerman is very much doing that here, right? Because Cinderella is the sort of, like, there is a kind of, like, constant nod to Cinderella, right? That she has to be home before dawn. Her shoe keeps breaking. You know, at the end, she throws the shoe away. And this, it's, like, refutation of Cinderella, Um Yeah, I don't know. And there's a there's a great film by there's a film by another feminist filmmaker named Erica Beckman, who is an experimental filmmaker working in the 80s, whose stuff is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I know
2: which one you're talking about.
3: Yeah, it's great. And it's like, again, there she's like upending the kind of Cinderella um, framework. And again, it's the sort of visual pleasure thing. It's like costumes and colors. And, you know, it's it's there's similarities totally between these two films. But I think like where my hesitation looking back at this film, and it's not really like, it's not a fair criticism to make of the film at the moment it was made, but I think looking back at it now, it's fine to kind of say these things about the film is that I think, you know, Ackerman seems to me to be kind of genuinely engaged in this project in this film of, you know, the kind of belief that there's like a sort of political valence to the idea of like, encouraging, like, women to kind of own their desire and, you know, quote-unquote empowering women to, like, to feel like they're following their desire is enough. And you see this very much in the end of the film, right? Like, Julie leaves both jack and joseph she like deposits her shoes in this garbage can and like is walking away in this very sort of forceful way and she's smiling as the camera follows her and it's daytime for the first time that she's outside and so there's this idea of kind of like maybe awakening maybe there's a question that she's like leaving this ideal but maybe not like maybe she's still maintaining this sort of idyllic space but now it's just for her so anyway i get what ackerman is like wanting to do here But (laughs) the other side of this is that, like, you also have a film where Ackerman has moved very much away from her interest in kind of, like, other forms of sexual relationships, right? I mean, the heterosexual relationship is, like, the the main line here, like this is the standard. And we, we didn't talk about that so much in relation to nui, which predominantly depicts heterosexual couples, but not exclusively. There are both um, lesbian and gay couples referenced in the film. Um, but then here it's like, yeah, this like real focus just on the heterosexual couple, which as people have pointed out, was even a bit taboo in like post um, 1970s or 70s and onwards feminist filmmaking. Um, and so Ackerman like exclusively focusing on this then maybe it is excused by this idea of like, oh, feminine desire. But I don't know. I look back at that and that ending to me, it just it's hard to to stomach those politics a little bit now when you look back at it and you just you realize how quickly and thoroughly those ideas were like co-opted into, you know, kind of like neoliberal consumerist capitalism. Right. It's like know your desire, buy the thing you want, like live in the world. There are no other problems other than the personal Problems. And I don't think that Ackerman often falls into this trap, but I do think that this film very much teeters on the edge of it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think you just hit the nail on the head, more or less, in terms of like, it is. So it it definitely feels like, unlike many of uh, of her films, or really like any of her films that I've watched, like this feels like a film of its moment. I guess in a way that is not necessarily always flattering, Um, and maybe that is that maybe part of that comes out inadvertently. um, Maybe that's an inadvertent byproduct of her desire to make more accessible films
3: that connect with
1: audiences more. So I guess I'm choosing to blame the audience. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well i mean and there is like there is again a kind of critique in here a little bit like there's the critique of the sort of bourgeois parents generation you know from the vantage of this kind of like this young couple with a promotion of sort of freedom and personal kind of like ethos over social doxa. like that's there there's also maybe this sort of critique against contemporary french cinema turning away from the political by at least her showing for i think much of the film the fact that this like Freedom from social reality is actually a bit of a cage. So I don't think it's that the film like entirely is like apolitical. I don't think it's that. I'm just not sure that like the balance of it totally works <laughs> at the end. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Caden, since you're not going to be getting to talk about uh, a couch on uh, in New York with us, I thought I might just ask you as 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 someone who's who's written about that film, um, if you had any thoughts about the how this movie kind of
2: maybe predicts where where she's going to try to go with that. It definitely sort of. Shows sort of maybe the limits of kind of having this fantastical conceit, because a couch, to me is kind of the funnier parts about a couch in New York is it kind of riffs on so on psychoanalysis in a way. So it has it. It's not so much sort of a social commentary, but it kind of has it. Kind of has a lot more sort of touched touchstones that kind of pull it back uh, from being almost this very sort of fleeting look of house swapping. It kind of, kind of has a sort of Nancy Meyers, the holiday type of setup, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So also prepare for that. But also I just think it's great that Ackerman for Sandrine Bonaire asked William her to be in a movie. <laughs> for, uh, I know that that shoot wasn't ideal, and obviously it has this odd association with being a Miramax film, which is kind of cumbersome obviously now, but I still liked it a lot, and I hope people give it a chance.
3: (laughs) Well, we'll make our case for that movie. We will. I, I, I like Couch in New York. I don't think I'm against it. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I mean, And I feel like, I, I don't know if I actually wrote down this thing, but I, you know, critics, I think were pretty mixed on night and day. I think there were some really, like, some defenders of it, um, I think certain people thought it was a sort of like a really interesting film. I think, you know, people write about the fact that like feminist critics had really kind of stopped paying attention to Ackerman's work by this point, like over the eighties and the nineties, feminist critics really are less interested because it doesn't fit into a kind of clear and obvious political paradigm anymore. Um, Which I do think in retrospect is maybe not so fair. And certainly there's other films where that question works out much more in Ackerman's favor, maybe than this one, but um, I guess that's what we have to say about this movie. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to say to like end on a high note about what I liked about
1: it. One thing I just, I wanted to quickly mention as long as, um, to to return to my habit of just mentioning casting trivia, you can also see uh, Ghislaine Lundez in theaters right now in uh, Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, apparently.
3: Oh, seriously? Oh, I had no idea. She's,
1: She's in the mix. She's one of the nuns.
3: <laughs> there's a lot
1: of them um, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't i don't know if i'd be able to pick her out of one. <laughs> but she's in there
3: oh okay here i have one last thing to say about the the voice and ackerman's uh narration that we can end on um yeah i mean the, i love i do love the idea of ackerman narrating the film herself i i think that that's like a genuinely engaging and like nice aspect of this film um I don't know. It's quite rare, like, to have a filmmaker narrating their own film. So there's this sort of, like, self-referential quality, right? The kind of, like, denial of it having its own diegetic closure. It's like, no, she's reminding you regularly that she is the author. Like, she is Mm -hmm. the voice of the film on the one hand. And then there's the other kind of, like, again, uh, maybe of its moment, like, 80s uh, and early 90s feminist angle. But this idea that, you know, critics like Marianne Doan and kasha silverman have written about uh the fact that the voice in cinema like it tends to be quite gendered the fact that the female voice tends to often be really linked in the image to a body whereas the male voice can be sort of like disembodied and becomes the voice of the apparatus the voice of the film the voice of the you know the narrator etc which gives it more of an, an authorial presence um and something like uh Singing in the Rain actually plays with this, like, super interestingly. But uh, but anyway, so the fact that Ackerman here is, like, really clearly, like, asserting her presence at the level of the author, I just, in, in a way that, again, directly flips Truffaut's narration of Jules and Jim is great. <laughs> so I and, love that.
1: And, and I, I will say also, one thing I like about her narration is because it adds just a little bit of a, like a framing or distancing element or whatever, it allows for a little bit more room of, like, maybe we're we're not supposed to love these people or think that they're yeah, th- yeah we're not necessarily yeah. supposed to think they're not super annoying some of the time because yeah. like it's sort of a yeah. it's got a little bit of of a buffer between this this uh, intimate zone that they're in versus this uh, omniscient presence kind of reminding us of 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 itself yeah. yeah and i i will say also that uh i guess my last remark is i do really like how um I like how the neighbors eventually do break through and kind of come together to absurdly paint this giant apartment, even, th- even though it seems like as neighbors they've been nothing but a persistent pain in the ass, um, including like, knocking down walls and shit. I really like the, the conceit of, you know, things open up and then collapse it's kind of as an as, uh, in, in association. I think that's quite neat
3: yeah definitely i know i love ackerman's voiceover saying things like well they probably come from the provinces it's like (laughs) she doesn't even know (laughs) she's like yeah yeah, they seem like the type
1: some of her narration is kind of like her like it's kind of like i imagine her explaining the movie in a pitch meeting or something (laughs) (laughs) it's 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 quite strange but kind of cool
3: oh man okay well yeah i guess we can we can probably start to wrap up there but um well, Simon usually does this, but I guess I get to do it. Uh, Caden, is there anywhere that you uh, have writing right now that you'd like to direct people to, to check out or anything?
2: Um, not of right now. Um, I recently did kind of do some capsules for reverse shot on um, a Chuck Jones sort of symposium that was happening at the Museum of Moving Image in New York City. So I got to talk about Bugs Bunny and all the times that Bugs Bunny wore cross-dressed. So, was, so that was <laughs> fun. Um, uh, recent, recently, I have some stuff in the works that I need to finish <laughs> this weekend. But um, other than that, I, no, I'm just going steady at this point.
3: Is your is your Instagram open to people? Like, can people find you on Instagram? Yes, people or, can yeah. find me
2: on Instagram under "Corpses, Fools, and Monsters." i kind of have I have the app off my phone to finally be able to finish things. <laughs> uh, but one March is going to be when I'm going to be probably active and obnoxious because I'll probably do like my birthday countdown or something like that. <laughs>
3: I, I really I really enjoy Caden's Instagram. Uh Caden wrote a great piece. I'm going to forget where was this for like a Criterion thing your piece about like the Trans Archives yes, uh, it magazine. Was. That was fantastic. Thank and Caden's Instagram is so filled with kind of like fascinating history about um like trans aesthetics and representation and just really it's like great stuff so i highly recommend people check that out
1: caden the good news is this episode won't be out till april first so by the time that's yeah. happened all your obnoxiousness <laughs> will have gone by Good.
3: <laughs> Excellent. oh it's great well Isn't thank you for coming medium? on <laughs> exactly um. But yeah, thank you for coming on, Ken. This was a super fun discussion. Um, yeah. yeah. All right, well, Simon, are we we already did we say what we're doing next time? I don't think we did. Uh, yeah. Right? No, we
1: didn't. Uh so next month we next month is,
3: right? Yes. Okay.
1: So, uh next month we'll be will be talking uh well, actually we'll be continuing the trend of talking about uh, Ackerman romance and comedy. Um, but you'll have to wait and see what exactly that means.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Well, okay. Thanks, uh, Simon and Caden, and we'll see everybody in a month, I guess. Bye. Boom.